tomorrow, only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs, streaming tomorrow only on Disney Plus. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, March twenty seventh, twenty twenty three. On the show today, news, listener questions, and surveys. Then in our main segment, it's the anniversary of the opening of the Walt Disney World Casting Center designed by famous architect Robert A.M. Stern. And Jim tells us all about the relationship between Disney and two famous architects, Robert A.M. Stern and Michael Graves. Let's get started by bringing in the man who lost big at the horse races yesterday and in the process discovered they're all much, much faster than he is. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? <laughs> it's going well, Len, but I live on a country road where on this dirt road, there were, for a time we had not one but two horse farms, both sure. of which raised Percherons. Are, are, are you familiar with, with these monumental horses? No. Are they, are they bigger than Clydesdales? Yes, actually. They are 17 hands tall. That's nearly six feet. 2,100 pounds, that's over a ton. And I remember Oof. taking Alice down when she was a little girl to, to go visit them. And I had her put an apple on her, on, in the palm of her hand, which the horse inhaled. And <laughs> at, at that moment, my, my daughter, which had been enthusiast of My Little Pony, you know, immediately the needle got buried in the different direction where it's all, all she can think of is were horses that had their those giant mouth and, and those enormous teeth. So one little girl's dreams got crushed that day by a giant <laughs> horse. So, On the other hand, it's, uh, it's cheaper now that you didn't have to buy her a horse this or a pony. This is true. This is true. Do you know I was an adult when I realized that ponies and horses uh, are two different things, that a pony is not a small horse, like a, a juvenile horse? You're exposing a vast area of ignorance on my part as well. Yeah. For a time, I've always thought that, you know, ponies were horses that got left out in the rain. <laughs> like they're made out of cashmere. Exactly. And they shrink. Yeah, didn't bring the horses in. Now we got ponies. Maybe, maybe we should start a, a podcast about animals, Jim, and all of the knowledge that we have uh, yeah, about that, it, 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 People would really enjoy that <laughs> yeah. five-minute-long show. Yes, please. I was going to say, I think it'd be great. It'd be great. <laughs> All right, Jim. Speaking of people, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Laura Zwiedema, Skip Potter, Vicky Fielding, and Jaden MC two one eight nine, and longtime subscribers Ian Senior, Go Ask Pink Alice, and John Kivis. Jim, these are the Disney cast members who live in the city apartments in the jackhammer scene of Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. They say that the short commute and low, low rents make up for Jackhammer Pete's noise and that the ice cream shop is really excellent. True story. I had no idea that was even an option. You know, it's a, a house, the housing market in both Orlando and Anaheim is, uh, is very difficult. So you, you, you find places where you can, Jim. All true. All true. All right, Jim, let's do the news. It's been a while. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online. At storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, as we record today's show, our intrepid field reporter, Christina, is sitting down for lunch at Roundup Rodeo Barbecue and will be texting us commentary 
as she goes through the menu. So I'll be providing those updates in real time throughout the show. In fact, the first update that Christina has sent is that, number one, they let you ride a horse going in to the restaurant. And I think this might be one of those, uh, when they say horse, it might, be, it might be like a mop that you straddle. I'm not entirely sure on that. The other little bit of information that Chrissy has given is that, you know how, Jim, they list a series of like six different side mm-hmm. items that you can you can have, and you get to choose any four of them. Well, apparently, if you ask nicely, they will give you all six. We seem to have stumbled on a horse theme this evening. So, again, you know, I did <laughs> Exactly. And Jim, by the way, have you uh, have you told our listeners where we've been for the last couple of weeks? I have not. I've actually been saving this story for the show because looking back on the trip, it, it's hard to reconcile. We actually did that stuff. We did a lot of things. So I've been gone for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, two weeks ago, mm-hmm. uh, Jim and I were supposed to fly out. So this was like first week of March. Jim and I were supposed to fly out to Las Vegas where we would meet with a friend and tour the different casinos on the Strip, mm-hmm. looking at the architecture and the theming, and also make a side trip out to Omega Mart, mm-hmm. which is a uh, an interactive sort of storytelling experience uh, just off the Strip, and it's coming to Orlando, which is why it's interesting. So Jim, actually, uh, the day he was supposed to fly out, got snowed in yes, and couldn't yes. make it to it Vegas. It was a theme yeah. for this trip. Weather. Weather was a theme for this trip, yeah. Oh, yeah. Horses and snow, and, and in fact, I should have bought a sled. I got tripped up by a late winter storm, which meant that Len went solo to Vegas. And then I actually curtailed my trip to Las Vegas by about, or to me, to LA by, by a couple hours to try to get home to beat yet another snowstorm. Yeah, so I ended up in Vegas. And because we weren't there together, I essentially stayed in the hotel room mm-hmm. most of the time and worked on the next edition of the unofficial guide. Mm-hmm. But I did make it out to Omega Mart, which we will do an entire show on at some point. But let me just say, uh, so this, for the for folks who haven't heard of this before, it's kind of like if the Galactic Star Cruiser was a convenience store. So the idea is that it's a you walk into the convenience store and there's a backstory that you have to discover. And there are clues at certain exhibits about what the backstory is and where you should go within the store to discover the rest of the story. The other thing about Omega Mart is that since it's a convenience store, they have to have products on the shelves. Mm -hmm. But they can't have real products on the shelves because it's not a real convenience store. So the artists who have created Omega Mart have come up with their own brands. So, Jim, you are familiar with brands like Advil PM, mm-hmm. right? Omega Mart has a, uh, an item called Corn PM, which is, <laughs> if, you needed, if you needed a starchy grain late at night <laughs> to help you sleep, Corn PM. The, uh, the other one that they have is uh, Sensual Salt. It's for all of your savory after 6 p.m. needs. Uh, and you you find these products by interacting with different things. So, for example, you know how like a lot of pharmacies and larger grocery stores have those automatic blood pressure machines mm-hmm. where you stick your arm in a cuff and it closes and it'll tell you your blood pressure. They have one of those mm-hmm. at Omega Mart, but in, uh, instead of giving you the blood pressure, which is what it's supposed to do, it tells you what products you should buy. So it told me to go check out the corn PM and the salt. And from there, mm-hmm. uh, where it's really interesting is um, you go into the, uh, it's a convenience store, but it has a home and garden section. Mm-hmm. And again, th- this is a convenience store like the size of a very small 7-Eleven. But when you explore the small home and garden section, 
you discover a portal, a doorway to another dimension. And in this little convenience store, that door opens up into essentially a warehouse full of rooms where you discover the rest of the story for Omega Mart. Um, so it took me, I was there for an hour and 45 minutes, mm-hmm. did not even begin to understand the entire story. It is massive. We'll, uh, we'll talk about it on another show. Wow. But, but uh, okay. you could easily spend eight hours there. And, and Jim, the, the reason why I was interested in this was, as I was going through this, I was thinking to myself, if ever there was a thing that you could put right away into Disney Quest, mm-hmm. it would be this. So we'll talk about it on another mm-hmm. show. Right? Intriguing. Okay. okay, cool, cool. We eventually did meet up in California where you picked me up at the Ontario... California airport. Mm-hmm. And we went from there to do a factory tour mm-hmm. of the Garner Holt manufacturing facility. Mm-hmm. And Garner Holt, of course, makes all of the animatronics mm-hmm. or most of the animatronics for Disney theme parks. Mm-hmm. And again, we're going to have to do an entire show on this. Garner actually said he will come on the show and talk about mm-hmm. it. I don't want to give too much away. Mm-hmm. But that man has more theme park memorabilia than I think I've ever seen in one place outside of Disney. I had been to Garner's previous headquarters, which is in San Bernardino. And now he's in Redlands, yeah. But this is like 150,000 square feet of And facility. we didn't even get to the facility across the street. Right. But, but yeah, you, you're not wrong. You know, Garner and Bill Turner, I want to say, very graciously spent more than an hour walking us through that facility. And... There's a lot of stuff we can't talk about yet. We'll have Garner on, and, and then he can talk about it. And this there way, we, we will all be released from our NDAs. A couple of interesting things. He, uh, Garner had showed us some of the animatronic features that they're working on, not necessarily for Disney, but just for the industry. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most amazing things that I saw is the next generation of animatronic skin. Like, you would think that the skin is basically pink-looking plastic, mm-hmm. but... Anyone who's ever looked at their own face, especially as they get older, mm-hmm. you know, in the mirror, realizes that your complexion is made up of not only like a uniform color skin, but it's dotted with little things. Mm-hmm. And Jim, we looked at, was it a wizard yeah. that he had? And I got as close to that wizard as I could, mm-hmm. you know, legally, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and to look at the skin... And I thought to myself, this skin is what my skin looks like when I look at it up close. Like all the little blemishes and stuff like that, all the stuff that you see in your own skin was there in this animatronic. It had layers Mm -hmm. and depth to it. Like there wasn't just like one layer of skin. Mm -hmm. You could see that it was like an opaque layer with some modeling on it, then another opaque layer with different detail, then another opaque layer. It was amazing in skin. I believe the term is subsurface scattering. Right, yeah. Crazy level of detail. I mean, there's genuinely some next-gen stuff going on inside of that building that, again, we can't talk about yet. But Yeah, and also, he's a, uh, Gardner's a huge theme park nerd mm-hmm. and has a collection of Disney theme park memorabilia that is essentially unrivaled <sighs> by anyone I know. Like, he has a Mike Fink keelboat. He does, he does. In, the, in his warehouse. Which is parked which across is just- from a, a Space Mountain car, which is parked across... From a, a Matterhorn car, which is next to a Skybox. I mean, again, it just... It, it, There's a DeLorean in there. Yeah, it's just got some incredible stuff. Yeah. It's really, really... Mm-hmm. So we'll have we'll have Garner on. Okay. By the way, Christy has texted me to say that the uh, plates that you get mm-hmm. at Roundup Rodeo Barbecue are uh, ceramic or plastic, mm-hmm. but designed to look like paper plates. So excellent oh. uh, tip there. Nice little uh, nod to authenticity there. All right, so Jim, from, uh, from Garner Holt, we drove about 10 miles, which takes about an hour and a half in California traffic, uh, west, and we visited Universal Studios Hollywood. 
where we got to go into the new Super Nintendo world and also on The Secret Life of Pets. And we have an entire Bandcamp exclusive that we recorded with uh, Disney Imagineer Jim Scholl mm-hmm. about that experience. So that'll be out on Bandcamp soon. Okay, and don't forget about Guy. And Guy Selgo was there too, yep. right? Our own, uh, our own Guy Selgo, which is great because Guy knows a lot about uh, Universal Studios Hollywood and loves Nintendo. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it was great to have Guy there too. And then, Jim, the next day, we got a tour of Disney Imagineering. Yeah. Yeah, we did. And again, I want to stress Which, here, folks, we went in through the front door that this did. With the front door, yeah, exactly. We got a legal Disney-approved version of Imagineering, mm-hmm. and it was led by Disney Imagineer Bob Weiss. And we got a tour of the Marty Scholar archives as well. <sighs> Which, again, I was thinking, do these people have any idea who they're letting through the front door? To give you some idea, places we got into that we shouldn't have been at, we got into the workroom where they are still processing Marty's personal papers. In fact, as we, we stood there and Mr. Weiss was explaining... You know the work they were doing. That they were four archivists. There were, yeah, there were four archivists at tables yeah. flipping through stuff. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Jim, did you notice that when those archivists were flipping through papers from the Marty Scholar archives, there were a couple of different boxes into which they could categorize yes. the documents. One of them was like definitely scan this and preserve this, right? Another one was like, okay, this is important. We should save it. You know, we don't know what we're going to do with it. We may not digitize it, but let's keep it in a box. And then there was a pile that was essentially burn as soon as you see this, right? It was, it was a box that yeah. was like, yeah. dear God, under no circumstances should this document ever see the light of day, right? Evidently, <laughs> Marty would take home his papers Every week, every, everything that he worked on, yeah. you know, he'd walk out the door with a box. The story that Bob basically told is that one day, again, Mr. Weiss at this point is the head of Imagineering and gets a call to the effect of, so what are we going to do about Marty's boxes? And it's like, what boxes? And what, they, they walk him out to a warehouse on the creative campus where inside of a chain link fence there are what, a thousand boxes sitting there? Yeah, inside the, uh, inside the warehouse, Marty had started storing, or I guess the archives had started storing the boxes that, of documents that Marty had accumulated. And to demark the zone that was Marty's stuff, mm-hmm. they had inside the warehouse installed a chain link fence <laughs> and said, yeah, these are Marty's things. But the interesting thing was Bob said yeah. he had called Marty's widow yeah, Leah, Leah. to say, yeah. hey, do you want any of these boxes? Mm-hmm. And, and her response was, dear God, no, but will you come and take the stuff that he's got in the attic? <laughs> so there were more things yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, they, that they, so they're going through it. And, and the, the, the thing that I love is that they'd hired four full-time archivists right. and people with mm-hmm. you know, professional degrees in this who had tons of experience working for major organizations that you know on their mm-hmm. archives, right? And they were, uh, so Bob is like, yeah, we think this is going to take a year. Yeah. And as soon as Bob said it was going to take a year, all four of them looked up like, by year, you mean decade, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, they are still in the, 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 the raw data gathering. They don't, yeah, they're still trying to flip through to figure out what they have. Right. And then supposedly they will digitize. But after we met with the four archivists, we got taken to this was just a preliminary display room of some of the. Tr- yeah. Oh, by the way, here's some stuff that we have. Oh, uh, so wait, before we do that, though, let me, let me just say we're in the room with the, <laughs> with the documents right. as the archivists are going through it. And they've got 
around the perimeter of the room, Mm -hmm. they've got folding tables set up. And on each folding Mm -hmm. table is a set of boxes with some very rudimentary labels like Walt Disney World Mm -hmm. internal documentation, right? That's a, a set of boxes. And Jim, I'm sitting there and the very document on the top mm-hmm. of that pile of boxes. It, they're not even in, in folders yet. It is literally, I'm going to take this document and I'm mm-hmm. going to place it in this box, right. unorganized, just like the, mm-hmm. this is literally the first level of categorization. But the first document that I see in the Walt Disney World internal communication is the brochure that Disney Imagineering mm-hmm. had produced back in the right. early 1970s about extending the people mover to the Disney uh-huh. Village Marketplace. And it was one of those documents, it looks yes. like, you know when you buy a new car, it's like, you know, you're yep. a Chrysler 300 and you, right? That's This was that document. And, yes. and you and I have talked about it, right? That it was, mm-hmm. we, we knew it was an idea. But to see mm-hmm. the actual document that said, this is the mm-hmm. idea and here's how we're going to do it. It was like getting confirmation of all of the stories uh. that you had heard as rumors were not only true, thought out way more than you could ever imagine. These are uh, literally a ream of paper boxes lined up, and there had to be 30 of them set yeah. up just around the perimeter room on the sort of plastic tables that you see in the church basement. Yeah, exactly. It was like, we're going to have a potluck here when we're done yeah. with this. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and again, you're walking by, and there is a three-ring binder where it's just the, the label on the front of this is Marty's Conversations with Ray Bradbury, Volume 1. And it's yeah. And the whole time I'm sort of making eye contact with Len to the effect of distraction. Make a distraction. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Somebody pull a fire alarm. Yeah, exactly. I love that one of the documents that we looked at was the original pitch for Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the old sort of like onion skin typewriter, double spaced yeah, font yeah. with red markups, you know, from Marty where he's like changing ideas after it's been typed yeah. in. I'm like, do you know what people would pay for this? This is the Disney equivalent of the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, that building full of boxes that are full of treasures. And we are going to have to wait for them to catalog and decide what they have. And then, as as Clint just alluded to, what from this pile gets walked out? Because... Mm. That's the thing. There were yeah. some stories Disney will love to share here, and there were other stories that they'll be renting space with. We'll never they, see the light of the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right next to the nuclear waste. It's a put these in there. Yeah. Nobody needs to know that. Like I said, I mean, there were documents there where the pile was like, do not trash, mm-hmm. you know, comma, shred. And then they, the word shred was mm-hmm. in like 72-point font, italicized and red. And it was like a little asterisk next to it saying, you know, and then encasing concrete and throw in volcano. Like never, never show this to anyone. The the other funny thing was, mm-hmm. you know, we were talking to Bob as we were looking at the actual documents mm-hmm. themselves. And they actually let us flip through a couple of them. And I was like, okay, it's going to take you a year to scan these documents. And, you know, even if you've got like optical character recognition stuff, right? Everybody who's ever worked in a library or as an archivist knows that attaching metadata Mm -hmm. to the document, like being able to index the document based on the subject Mm -hmm. and identifying the keywords and the thing that the memo is talking about, right? Metadata is the hard part. So even if they could scan it in a year, Mm -hmm. the metadata is a five or 10 year project, right? Uh, Easily, easily. And because Marty himself, obviously, given he would take home a box of this stuff every week, was a collector slash hoarder, 
But yeah. they were talking about for how, for example, Marty saved drawings from John Hench. So there's this amazing catalog of early concepts for how Space Mountain would have looked. And do you remember the one of Tinkerbell dressed as a knight wielding a sword? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, our, our first comment is, and nobody called Disney Consumer Products? <laughs> like, consumer Products would do this right now. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, the stuff with the uh, the hench things is like some of these are are literally paper napkins that John does a sketch on yeah. during lunch and that would probably fetch five thousand dollars right yeah. now and and you know if Marty they were, if they were up for auction took it to his office tossed it in a box took it home and here we are yeah so ah, amazing and then the uh, the next day we went to uh, to DCA mm-hmm. and the day after that to uh, Disney, Disneyland where we went on um, web slingers. Mm-hmm. And the new Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. And uh, Jim, we've actually got a Bandcamp exclusive that's going to be out like in the next couple of days yep. about this because you and I have already listened to it. Aaron's already got it produced. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was uh, that was a lot of fun because, again, we toured with Disney Imagineer Jim Scholl. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, all of our listeners are theme park fans, right? So, so you know, to our listeners, imagine mm-hmm. if you were able to walk through a Disney theme park mm-hmm. with the Imagineer who worked on that theme park. Yeah. And you got to ask questions like, why is this here? Mm-hmm. Why did you put the curb here? Why does that sign say that? Why is this here instead of there? What were you thinking over here? And then get an answer for all of that. In real time. We basically did that for two days, yeah. <laughs> which is, it's kind of great. Now, mind you, it's happening and pouring down rain. And Len is in, in, in full Grand Inquisitor mode, and I'm in scribe mode, writing in the rain. So yeah. those are still drying out, Len. I'll get you those notes yeah. when, when the ink finally dries. So. Uh, but it was amazing, uh, and the uh, the walk around is is really really mm-hmm. good. So that's coming out on Bandcamp uh, very very soon. By the way, a quick update from Chrissy, mm-hmm. who says that the uh, the biscuits and red pepper jelly over at Roundup Rodeo Barbecue are excellent. Mm-hmm. Also, that it is utter chaos inside. I guess from the sound and the noise, mm-hmm. and that uh, your spouse is likely to divorce you if you uh, insist on taking them there. <laughs> good to know. Good to know. Wow. All right, Jim. On to the uh, on to the mm-hmm. news. All right, uh, Tron. Mm-hmm. At the Magic Kingdom is in soft opening now, and that's well ahead of its official opening on April 4th. Mm-hmm. I note that virtual queue reservations for Tron are selling out in just under, Jim, how many seconds per day? Oh, God. That, less than four, I've been told. Four, yeah. <laughs> Between three and four seconds for all of the virtual queue reservations to go out. Also, if you really want to ride, mm-hmm. uh, individual Lightning Lane is just over $21 per person, including tax. Okay. Uh, so there's always that option mm-hmm. there. Also, uh, Jim, now that uh, Tron is in soft opening, the walkway between Tomorrowland and Storybook Circus mm-hmm. has reopened, which is good. Mm, good to know. Also, speaking of reopening, uh, breakfast and lunch will return to Epcot's restaurant Ikershus mm-hmm. in the Norway Pavilion on May 14th mm-hmm. with princesses. Uh, no pricing or menus yet. My guess is they're going to retain the... Uh, family-style offerings that they're doing right now for dinner. Okay, okay. Well, that, that happy news for, for lots of parents at Epcot looking for things to do. Exactly. While we're on the subject of character dining, there's a rumor going around that 1900 Park Fairs reopening should be announced soon as well. So let's look out for that. Is there any info about the update of the lobby of the, the Grand Flow? It's it's under construction now. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot going on at the Grand Floridian right okay. now. Also, Jim, uh, a former Disney Imagineer has posted to social media a set of images mm-hmm. that show what the Mary Poppins ride would have looked like in Epcot's 
United Kingdom Pavilion. Have you seen this? Yes, I have. And it's so nice this far after the fact to finally get confirmed that, well, first of all, that this ride was going to key off of the, not the original Mary Poppins film from 64, but rather Mary Poppins Returns. Right. And and it's a essentially a teacup ride. It is. It is. Indoors. But right. the intriguing thing is that it keys off of the hand-drawn scene in the middle of the film with the again in fact what's interesting is you are not riding in a teacup you were riding in one of the royal dalton bowls in fact if, if you look at the overhead you are inside of the bowl you can actually see the cracks on the surface of the floor of, of the, this bowl but we're looking at 18 little teacup like bowls that would have swirled around inside the building yeah, so a giant circle, just like uh, uh, you know the Mad Tea Party mm-hmm. in the Magic Kingdom. You have a giant circle that rotates, and then within that, there are three smaller circles. Mm-hmm. Each smaller circle has six bowls, mm-hmm. and the bowls themselves spin, so it's circles within circles. Yep. A couple of interesting things here. One, uh, it looks like the queue would have begun at the back right side mm-hmm. of the UK Pavilion. So you know how like if you go deep inside the UK Pavilion, mm-hmm. there's a little courtyard area, mm-hmm. and then so in the back into the right of that, would have been the entrance to the queue. But I notice here, Jim, there are two pre-show yes. rooms with... Yeah, interesting. Well, I, I think about it. First, you have to actually enter the house at 17 Cherry Tree Lane. And then you transition. Mm-hmm. If you remember, in the movie, you entered the, the kid's nursery and then were magically transported to the world of Royal Dalton Bowl. So... Scene one is entering the house. Scene two is the kid's bedroom. And then if you look to the back of the kid's bedroom, there, there's a portal sort of similar to uh, Storytime with Belle, how you, you would then transition into the world of the Royal Dalton Bowl. Ah, okay. That's what the two um, pre-show scenes are? That's it, exactly. Interesting. It would have been a lovely addition, but the, the language that's being used online about this attraction, the postponed Mary Poppins uh, attraction, but uh, internally, mm. what we're being told is just basically, it's not that it wasn't a bad idea, and certainly it would be lovely to have a more kid-friendly flat ride in that park, but frankly, Mary Poppins Returns didn't make enough money to, at this point, any to, to quantify, build, you know, this sort of investment in the UK. Right, that's the uh, that's the thing. There's a there's there wasn't enough interest in the movie mm-hmm. to commit the time and the money to do it. But it does look charming. And then the uh, speaking of concept art, uh, Disney has also released a visual of the scene inside the first drop of Tiana's Bayou Adventure. Have you seen this? Yes, yes. And if you'll notice the band again, right. we have a Tiana figure, we have a Lewis figure, and then we have a band. Right. So we're uh, we're looking at the ride from behind one of the. Uh, logs, and it looks like there's eight people in a log. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, the water stream in which the log is floating. Mm-hmm. On the right-hand side of that stream is Tiana mm-hmm. in a suit. On the left in the foreground is the alligator, and then sort of behind that is a, a small dock mm-hmm. for boats, and you've got a bunch of animals playing music there. Yeah, and we're not looking at a bunch of figures that are recycled from Splash Mountain or American. I was going to make this point. These are not. Uh, these are not uh, animatronics from Splash Mountain. They are not. And part of that is because Disney, at this point, has made the decision 
to go forward with uh, strictly electrical animatronics going forward. And in fact, you have to remember that a lot of the figures that are in bolt splashes on uh, actually three, if we're counting Tokyo, right? They're hydraulically driven, and these are brand new figures, and they are all electric. Well, the good thing about that too is, um, you know, electric will be more reliable, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because if you're using hydraulics, they don't uh, hydraulics spring leaks. Mm-hmm. And need to be um, you know refilled from time to time, but electric should be uh, should be more reliable. So that's good because yeah. one of the issues that were um, was always present with Splash Mountain was that a number of the important effects didn't work all the time. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully this will resolve that. Uh, that said, I still am a little concerned because this is still a water based ride, and when you're you're, you're mm-hmm. using all electric in an environment like this where boats are going by all the time, humidity. And yeah. a lot of moisture in the air. Long story short, this might be a good attraction to view during the first three months. I'm just saying. Okay. <laughs> I think it'll be fine. I mean, they can, they can they can waterproof electronics, right? You can you can coat them in paraffin and stuff like that. Okay. So, all right. All right. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. I'm I'm convinced that they could do it. All right. Last little bit of news. Uh, Disney's testing a 30% discount for DVC members at the Galactic Star Cruiser in August. I think mm-hmm. this is a sign that more discounts are coming. And I'd be surprised, frankly, Jim, if uh, 30% mm-hmm. is the number that gets people to go. Mm-hmm. It's still around $3,500, which is a lot of money it is. for two days. It is. So, um, still very much looking forward to to our experience with it in, in the coming week. So, but, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it should be, uh, should be fun. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, let's uh, do a quick uh, survey. Mm-hmm. Our friend Lauren sends in a survey that she got after a stay at the Polynesian Villas. Mm-hmm. And there are two interesting questions here, Jim. Mm-hmm. The first one is... Why didn't you use minivans? Mm. List all of the reasons why. And a couple of them are fairly obvious. Mm-hmm. It's too expensive. I didn't need them. Mm-hmm. And party size. And the reason why I say that um, too expensive is one of them. We've been looking at the fares, the cost of getting around Walt Disney World mm-hmm. using a minivan and using Lyft, which is, again, the service that... Disney's using to schedule the minivans. And it turns out that minivans are about three times more expensive to get from point to point than a regular lift ride. Wow. And so the question is, is why, if you know that, why would you ever use a minivan? Mm-hmm. Right? And we're talking the difference between like a, a $12 ride from like Pop Century mm-hmm. to Fort Wilderness, right? $12 mm-hmm. using regular lift versus $36 for the same ride. And I'm trying to figure out the reason why anyone would pay three times as much for the same service mm-hmm. to the same place. It's baffling. Wow. The second one was, a uh, second interesting question was, which amenities at Disney's Polynesian Villas were you not able to use at the level you expected? Hmm. And this is everything from like the pool to lounge chairs in the pool to the marina to arcade to housekeeping, to movies, and so on. Mm-hmm. Really interesting thing there because I think, Jim here, Disney's trying to figure out if we have a limited supply of staff mm-hmm. to do these things in the hotel, mm-hmm. where would we prioritize those things? Okay. Right? Like, is housekeeping more important than movies under the stars? Mm-hmm. I would love to see the inside of, the, uh, of those results. This is the poly, of course, we're talking about here. And mm-hmm. hasn't construction of the DVC next door gone vertical? Oh, yeah. It just uh, went vertical. They, it looks like they're putting up – it's either the um, one of the 
internal stairwells or one of the elevator shafts? Because mm-hmm. typically, one of the things that goes vertical first is either one of those. Okay. Right? They're the um, uh, and and they I think they're three or four stories up on it right now. Yeah. Okay. Because because what's kind of interesting about this sort of construction at Disney is you don't get the normal construction complaints because frankly. 90% of the guests are in the park. You do get some folks who are perhaps poolside or out on the veranda at, at Trader Sam's and that sort of thing that, that might be impacted by the noise. But just kind of intrigued that the dimension of that showed up in the survey. The thing that I'm interested in seeing isn't at the poly, but what's the feedback of guests mm-hmm. at the Grand Floridian Wedding Pavilion and the Grand Floridian Villas for all the construction noise? Like, you know that sometimes when you're when you're doing construction and you have to sink uh, steel oh, into the yes. ground for foundations, yes. you're getting that like bing, that, bing, yep. bing. Like, do they? Does the construction team know that you know Sam and Lisa have a wedding <laughs> scheduled for one p.m. on Thursday and not to keep doing that? I'm, I'm sure they do, right? Uh, you would hope that hope. there's they got an ongoing conversation between the, yeah. the folks at the wedding pavilion and and the the poly DVC. Because you would think that the construction crew knows exactly what's going mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. at the wedding pavilion to the point where I would expect, if I got married at the wedding pavilion, I would expect to see a bouquet of flowers that says, Teamsters Local 531 <laughs> wishes you and your bride the very best of luck. Like, I would, I'm, I'm sure that that's the level of detail okay. that Disney's at this point. Yeah. Wow. I, if that's not going on, that, you know, that somebody should take the. It should. It totally, it totally should. should. It totally should. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, last thing that uh, Lauren mentions is that there's a series of questions at the end of the survey mm-hmm. asking how many times you experienced different things in Walt Disney World. For example, early theme park entry, extended evening theme park hours, the first ability to purchase and schedule lightning lane attractions, and dining reservations, mm-hmm. and so on. And I know that uh, folks from Consumer Insights at Disney listen mm-hmm. to our podcast. Uh, Lauren's point here was that uh, when asked for the number of times you used these services, you weren't allowed to answer zero for any of those questions. The minimum number that you uh, you could give is one. So probably throw off the results uh, of those surveys. Maybe it's time to get that question fixed. We've talked about this in earlier surveys, and it just kind of kills me that Disney, in these sorts of situations, isn't getting real data. Yeah, They're hampered by the way these questions are set up. And it's like, you know, it's important to know that I wasn't able to use that at all. And that, that, that's the thing, too, because you know, th- these results, if the minimum number is one, you're really not learning anything. No, no. It's like, you know, the, 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 and if anything, you're placating the folks in manager. Ah, they got to use it once. Don't worry about it. Everyone's using it at least once, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, fair enough. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the news. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us about Disney's collaborations with architects Michael Graves and Robert A.M. Stern. We'll be right back. We mentioned at the beginning of the show that this is the anniversary of the opening of the Walt Disney World Casting Center, yes, yes, which was good. designed by Robert mm-hmm. E.M. Stern. We kind of used that as, as the opportunity to back into this story. But before we do that, Len, I, I wanted to make you aware of a, a real estate opportunity, a five-acre parcel has recently become available in Malibu. Oh, okay. Lovely site, yeah. overlooks the Atlantic Ocean, currently owned by Michael and Jane Eisner, and was listed in May of last year for the entirely reasonable $225 million. A five, five acres, $225 million. 
So $46.25 million per acre. What's important to understand here is that the Eisner family started out with just one parcel in this neighborhood in Malibu, but over time has acquired the four parcels to either side of the, the, you know, expanding out to this now five-acre, nine-building, 16-bedroom complex, uh, which has been described as village-like, completed construction in 2020. And most importantly, Michael Eisner personally insisted that this complex be designed by Robert A.M. Stern. And oh, really? Okay. What's kind of interesting is why uh, Michael, who, by the way, is 81 now, and Jane uh, hmm. have decided to put this on the market. And it's, it's largely to, to simplify their lives. They're letting their Malibu compound go, but they're hanging on to their Spruce Lodge uh, home up in Colorado, uh, also designed by Robert A. M. Stern, uh, which has been of course. described as a huge hotel-like estate. A log lodge built on a stone foundation, which combines the rustic forms of an Adirondack camp with a Rocky Mountain ranch. I love the idea, Jim, that you can just call up Robert A.M. Stern and say, I'm looking for something lodge-like. Can you throw some things together? And Robert A.M. Stern would do it. Eisner clearly loved what Stern did. Mm -hmm. Not just one, but two homes. Also, this is a guy who did a lot of work for Disney. Now, Now, face it. As you look at the Disney World, Disneyland, you can see a lot of work, or or for that matter, Disneyland Paris, a lot of work by Michael Graves, uh, some lovely hotels Mm -hmm. by Peter Dominic. We even Mm -hmm. have the Arata uh, Asuzaki Team Disney Orlando building, which has been described as a nuclear plant. (laughs) Only one of these architects was offered a seat on the Disney board, and that was Robert A.M. Stern. Really? I didn't know that. You know, and and this all dates back to Michael Eisner's flirtation with being an architecture patron. And that really slides all the way back to Michael coming through the door as the new head of Disney in late September of 84. And one of the things that Michael inherited as he came through the door at Disney was a handshake deal that the previous management team had made with Tishman Realty and Construction. These are the guys who did uh, most of the heavy lifting construction-wise on Epcot Center in the early 80s. And because, uh, Len, they actually managed to get this 305-acre complex, and by the way, that's twice the size of the Magic Kingdom, they managed to deliver it for the fall of 1982. So, you know, we can do it. We did it. Yep. Disney World agreed to give Tishman Realty and Construction the right to build a convention center along with a convention hotel anywhere they liked on Disney World property. Wow. That's a, a pretty decent carrot to get people to complete. How big could they make these hotels? Like, is this like, you know, you can have 500 rooms or? If you go over the press accounts, they had the right to ultimately build Upwards of 20,000 moderately priced hotel rooms that were directly wow. linked to this convention center. So, Really? I mean, to put that in perspective, there's only like 28,000 hotel rooms in Walt Disney World right now. So that's, that's a chunk. Well, but this is the thing. The idea was they wanted to turn Disney into the go-to place for giant conventions. And, and we're talking right. things like you know, the Republican or the Democratic National Convention. I mean, you know, some... Right. McDonald's. That's exactly. Right, you know, the, more these, than 100,000. These yeah, yeah. absolutely giant things, though, 
did you see the story that broke just yesterday about the large LGBTQ convention that is committed to Walt Disney World property for two years in a row coming up? Yep, it's not excellent news. That's going to be kind of interesting to see how certain politicians react to that. Anyway, uh, getting back to the uh, the Tishman story. Michael Eisner came through the door, saw and heard about this handshake deal, and said, yeah, that's the previous management team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could maybe get better terms out of Marriott. And so they begin, they Ooh. open. Again, they recognize, and in fact, we've talked about this. The Bass Brothers were after Michael Rick from the get-go to add more hotels on property, and certainly having a giant convention facility made sense as well. So Michael begins having conversation with Marriott. Tishman gets word of this. February of 1986, they sue the Walt Disney Company for $1.3 billion. Yeah, which back in 1988 was a lot of money. There we go. But Michael isn't necessarily upset that Tishman has filed this lawsuit because, frankly, he's seen Marriott's presentation of what they wanted to build on Disney property, you know, this giant convention facility. And Michael reportedly referred to it as, it looks like a bunch of refrigerator boxes. Yeah, not what you want when it's sitting right next to Epcot, right? But see, that's the thing. Michael, at this point, has come through the door, and it's been about 18 months at this point. And he's forming a vision for Disney going forward. It's like, look, we're an entertainment company. And so the buildings we build should be entertaining. You should know right from the get-go, you know, when you you come on Disney property, it's like, okay, I'm I'm at Disney. That looks like fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In January of 1988, after numerous lawyers clashing and, and briefs being filed and this sort of thing, Disney comes to a settlement with, with Tishman Realty. The hotel, convention center, convention hotel project will move forward. However, Michael's new condition is that they have to use an architect that he approves of. And in this case, that is Michael Graves. He's sort of called the the father of postmodernism architecture. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Like when you when you look at any sort of retrospective of postmodern architecture, mm-hmm. great stuff comes up uh, all the time. Yeah. And in fact, I, the, the, the two hotels you're going to talk mm-hmm. about are examples mm-hmm. that are given of you know, postmodern architecture. What Len is referring to here, here, of course, is the dolphin and the swan. And mm-hmm. prior to the dolphin and the swan, Michael Graves had never designed a hotel before. You know, there's a lot of folks who tell you, looking at the dolphin and swan, yeah, it's pretty obvious. He never did. Yeah, you know, you don't say. How about that? But Eisner is still solidly in Graves' corner at this time Mm -hmm. because Michael Graves, not Eisner, had come up with the design for the Team Disney building in Burbank building. In Burbank. Yeah, the, the, the company's corporate headquarters in the Disney lot. And when this project was its initial design phase, Eisner reportedly turned to Graves and said, look. When I come into work each morning and I go up to my office, I will probably have very little to smile about. But do something with this building that will make me smile whenever I arrive. So Graves goes off, does some research, and finds out that the, the land that the Burbank lot stands on had been purchased mm-hmm. back in August of 1938 with the money that had been generated by the enormous success of the company's very first full-length animated feature, Snow White, The Seven Dwarfs premiered in uh, uh, December 37th. Okay, I, I, I think 
I think I know where you're going. Okay, with this. so right, so that's the thing. So since Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs were literally the foundation of the studio in Burbank, Graves decides, okay, let's have the team Disney Burbank Building pay tribute to that very same film by having the seven dwarves themselves serve as caryatids uh, for the structure. And, and I use the term caryatid because that's the, it, those are sculpted figures that serve as an architectural support, uh, take the place of a pillar. Yeah, they're basically columns there in we the go. shapes of there dwarves. There we go. That are holding up the roof. All right. So in this case, <laughs> the team did this move. These are 19 foot tall dwarves. <laughs> you know, which again, you know, jumbo shrimp, military intelligence. Jumbo shrimp, exactly. I, yeah, I, irony is not lost on Robert okay. Armstrong. But Jim, I, I love the idea because uh, in the uh, in the language of storytelling, mm-hmm. having 19 foot tall characters on a building is what we call foreshadowing. There we go. There we go. All right, go ahead. Okay, so team building, uh, Disney uh, Burbank building gets done in 1990, and it does, in fact, make Michael Eisner smile, which is more than you can say about uh, Walt Disney World's Dolphin and the Swan. When this project was completed, they did finally get an on-site convention center of size. And, and by that, I mean bigger than the convention facilities that were already in place over at the Contemporary. Also got an attached hotel facility, but the look of the the two structures. You know, we start with the Swan with its twelve hour, or sorry, twelve story tall rectangular central building, and its two uh, seven story wings, which is then connected by a walkway to the twenty six story tall triangular dolphin. And that's the thing; it's a triangle at the middle. Yeah, yeah. The other super interesting thing about the Swan and Dolphin, mm-hmm. and you go back to the you know the fact that Graves had never done a hotel before. Mm-hmm. If you try and characterize how to get from the lobby to different arms of the, uh, to rooms in different arms of this resort, and then you try and describe the views from those rooms, it's literally all over the place. In fact, I I have often felt bad for you uh, with your unofficial guide hat. If you're staying, Over in the Dolphin and have to get over to the Swan to get to the convention facilities there. Yeah, like if if you're up in one of the rooms in a far corner and one of the uh, arms coming off the main building, and you have to tell people how to get there, it's like just pull up Google Maps. Yeah. Like no, just, this no, is no. gonna be it's gonna be easier to do that. Yeah. When it comes to actually getting people over to the the actual convention facility, if it weren't for the fact that that hotel employs a minotaur, I think a lot of folks would not be able to make it out of that yeah, building. No, you'd never, you'd never make it over there. No, you'd never do it. If you think about what we were talking with the, the Marriott, get mm-hmm. upwards of 20,000 rooms. The fact that combined, uh, what, the 758-room Swan, uh, which opens in January of 1990, and then the Dolphin with its 1,509 rooms. 2,200, 2,300 2,200, 2,300, and... It's basically 10, 10% of what they could have, could have built. Yeah, and, and what fascinates me is that when you think about how big they were originally supposed to go, uh, you know, in comparison mm-hmm. to the Marion Project, when you think about how long it took to get the reserve built there? Right, because that just opened in, what, 2021? That's it, exactly. That's it, exactly. The other thing is, is that if you look at the reserve, it is essentially the refrigerator style of <laughs> hotel architecture that Eisner did not want to put in next to Epcot. 
Worth noting that Michael Eisner, not in charge of the company when, when that one went forward. Also, it's it's a Marriott also. So it means that oh, the things God. that, uh, that wow. Eisner didn't I, want. So that this story bends back in on itself. I love that. But Jim, you had mentioned when we were talking before that um, Graves apparently had a backstory. Oh, God. For the Swan and Dolphin, and, and I didn't know this. Why don't, you, why don't you tell the listeners what it is? The story that Michael Graves came up for the hotel is that the dolphin was actually a tropical island that had been formed by a sudden cataclysmic event, uh, this upheaval of an underwater volcano or an earthquake. And, and when the island emerged from the sea, see, it lifted dolphins out of the water, and the, that's why there are dolphins in the roof. Oh, okay. okay. Now, a mountain then struggles to thrust its way up through the tropical jungle, and this is why you have the giant banana leaves painted on the side of the building to suggest a tropical forest. Now, meanwhile, across the way, this struggle forces the heart of the mountain to explode and water cascades down nine stories from the sides of the hotel uh, into the, the five clamshell basins uh, to form a fountain, which then, you know, settled into Crescent Lake and, and the water splashes across the way on the swan and that's, that accounts for the waves that are painted on the side of that hotel. So did you get any of that standing in front of that building? You know, Jim... What this story illustrates to me is how prevalent the three martini lunch <laughs> must have been in the late 1980s as Michael Graves was designing uh, this particular hotel. I mean, I, I get it. I'm going to have to go back mm-hmm. now and walk through the outside of the buildings to, to get this. I, I sort of mm-hmm. get it as an idea. I would love to see the brochure that pitched this to, to Disney as well. There was a moment that Michael Eisner stood in front of a model of these two hotels and signed off on it. But what was kind of interesting is one thing to have a model in a conference room. It's quite another to be standing inside of, for example, the still under construction Disney MGM and watch the dolphin and swan start to loom up. And and see the the helicopters uh, putting these 40-foot tall dolphins on top of that. Yeah, and and particularly the the notion of the visual intrusion that was happening over at Epcot. The Imagineers who had worked so carefully to create this sense of scale and intimacy and, and the sense of you really are in the UK or you really are in, in France when you're over there wandering in that corner of World Showcase. And to have that, you know, suddenly have people flood ladder the story because they can see, well, again, the, the, to, to give you the some idea of, of how these were greeted, these two hotels were greeted mm. on property as they were being constructed. They, the Dolphin and the Swan by cast members were referred to as the turkey and the tuna. Well, yeah, because, I mean, when Epcot was designed, mm. it wasn't designed with these hotels in mind. So once the hotels started being constructed, the Imagineers had to go back and say, okay, how do we block the view <laughs> well, well, of these hotels from inside Epcot? Imagineer, uh, or then Imagineer Craig McNair-Wilson, uh, had what he thought would be a, a you know elegant solution to this problem. It's just, well, look, all you need to do is put the animal for each country on top of the World Showcase Pavilion. You put a, you know, a, you know, a giant eagle on the, uh, the American there Adventure. We go. There we go. And it, it, it's a theme. Now, it was the, it was the dolphin and the, the, the swan that, that got Michael Eisner excited about doing making big architectural statements at Walt Disney World. But again, it was when they mm-hmm. actually began to rise up out of the ground that 
gave Michael pause. Uh, you know, and, and yeah. don't get me. But that didn't that didn't stop him from using uh, Graves on other stuff. Well, though, no, right? no, no, no. He he did the uh, the post office at Celebration. Uh, was in, yep. you know intimately involved in the early design of that project. Likewise, he did the uh, Hotel New York at Disneyland Paris, which by the way is. Yep. recently rethemed, reimagined as the Hotel New York Art of Marvel. But it came yep. to Walt Disney World and entertainment architecture. Eisner now embraced another vision, one that largely flowed off of the design table of one Robert A.M. Stern. And when we get to the second installment of the series, folks, which will be next week, we're going to talk about the many structures that Mr. Cern did for the Walt Disney World Resort in the 1990s. In fact, what fascinates me, Len, is if we start at the casting center and then, you mm-hmm. know, start to head, uh, is it west on uh, Buena Vista Drive? If you think about the boardwalk, uh, the yacht and beach yeah, club. West, yeah. I mean, there's this yeah. great concentration of of Stern's vision. And it's right next to the Grave Swan well, and Dolphin. So, yeah, we'll, we we'll talk about that because it's too completely different it is. It views is. Of, of architecture. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah. but again, fascinating story. Can't wait to get to it. It was funny that you mentioned the, uh, the, the post office in celebration. Cause I live a mm-hmm. block, mm-hmm. you know, from, from that post office. And the first time I saw the post office, honest to God, my first thought was, did Michael Graves design a post office? Yeah. Like it's, it's so iconic. Like if you know what to look mm-hmm. for, for his architecture. And for me, you know, the, the thing that I was thinking of the first time I saw it was, remember, he designed a, lot, a line of tea kettles he did. He for did. Target? Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, the, the first thing I think of when I look at this post office is the Michael Graves Mickey Mouse teapot for Target. <laughs> my God, this is, did Michael Graves ever design a post office? And then sure enough, it was. You have to wonder, Glenn, how many people are... I'm here, you know, sending in my tax bill. Why am I suddenly thirsty? I, I don't understand. This. Yeah, do you want some, some Earl Grey? Like I would go for it. Yeah, yeah. but it was it was funny that that you're like you're looking at that and going only one school of architecture mm-hmm. could have designed this building, Absolutely. and and that's Michael mm-hmm. Graves. Yeah, it was kind of great. Awesome. Well, good uh, good talk, yeah, Jim. Same thing. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. Like I said, Jim and I just recorded two exclusive shows in Disneyland and Universal Studios with Jim Scholl. Until recently, Jim was Executive Creative Director at Walt Disney Imagineering, so you can imagine what it was like for Jim and I to walk through a park with him. If you want to hear me say, Jim, what were you thinking here for two hours? Subscribe over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. On next week's show, we're going to finish up the story of Disney's collaboration with architects Michael Graves and Robert A.M. Stern. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, LennonTouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be demonstrating traditional glassblowing, including his award-winning techniques for marvering and troweling, at the 2023 Eastern Shore Sea Glass and Coastal Arts Festival at 10 a.m., on Saturday, April 22nd, 2023, at the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum on North Talbot Street in beautiful downtown St. Michael's, Maryland. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Trader Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. <laughs>